Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. When we start to lose faith, when we question things, that is when we see the power of God found in Paul's conversion. You're listening to Conversion Ex Nihilo by Reverend Peter Yonker. Before I um, tell you to open your Bibles, I want to start with a, uh, a piece of uh, uh, Bible trivia question. A pop quiz this morning, one, one question, one question for all you Bible scholars, and that question is this, where in the book of Acts do you find the story of Paul's conversion? Where in the book of Acts do you find the story of Paul's conversion? Now, many of you are saying, Peter, that is easy. You put the answer right in the bulletin. It's Acts 9. But you would be wrong. This is a trick question. The story of of Paul's conversion occurs three times in the book of Acts. It is in Acts 9. That's when it actually happens. That's what I'm going to read this morning. And that's what you should open to and turn to. But it also shows up in Acts 22 when Paul tells the story to an angry mob in Jerusalem. And it also shows up in Acts 26 when Paul tells it when he's on trial in Caesarea in front of King Agrippa. And when those stories are retold, it's not just retold like um, Luke doesn't just allude to it. He tells the whole story again. He lets, he puts in writing everything that Paul said about his conversion. So you get the conversion in full three times in one relatively small book. Now, why is that? Why did Luke choose to put so much space to tell this story three times? Well, it's because there's something really important about this story something that Luke wants us to hear, something that the Holy Spirit wants us to hear. So let's listen. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, and I will read verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Saul went to the high priest and asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues in Damascus So that if he found there anyone who belonged to the way, Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, 
I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings, to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. There's a whole genre of conversion stories that we might call dramatic conversion stories. And I'm thinking of the kind of conversion stories that you hear at high school chapels or at youth retreats um, or at conventions. And, and all these sort of dramatic conversion stories follow a similar pattern, right? It's somebody who's in distress, someone whose life has gone off the rails, and in one dramatic moment, the Holy Spirit comes to this person and changes them and turns their life around. And ever after that day or ever after that night, they are completely different. And there's lots of those stories out there. Chuck Colson, good example of a dramatic conversion story. Chuck Colson uh, was a cutthroat politician. He was the president's hatchet man. He did dirty deeds for Nixon by his own accounting. Uh, but when the Watergate scandal came, all of a sudden everything came crashing down around him and he was publicly shamed. He was arrested, he was facing jail time, his life had completely come apart. And in the middle of that situation, he was invited over to a friend's house. The friend's name was Tom Phillips. Tom Phillips and his wife were Christian people. They had compassion on Colson. They invited him into the house. They gave him a meal. And while he was there, they witnessed to him about Jesus. They offered him the hope and the comfort of Jesus in the middle of his shame. And as Colson says it, after this meal was done, in the car, on the way home, he started to sob, and he surrendered his life to Christ. That's a dramatic conversion story, right? A sudden change that lasted, right? Colson was a changed man after that. There's other examples. Martin Luther, thunderstorm on the road, converting his life, giving his life over to Jesus, I'll become a monk. Um, St. Augustine, torn up inside, hearing a child's voice saying, take up and read, take up and read, picking up scripture, and having the Holy Spirit fill him and change him. All these are examples of dramatic conversion stories where the Spirit moves powerfully and people are suddenly changed. Now, these are wonderful stories. And at first reading... It probably seems to you like Paul's conversion is one of those stories. That Paul's conversion fits into that genre. That Paul's conversion is maybe the first of that genre. But what I want you to see this morning is that there are real differences between this story and those other dramatic conversion stories that I was just talking about. There is something different about the way Paul is converted, and that difference is terrifically important. Because when you see what's different about Paul's conversion, 
you start to see the heart of the gospel. How is Paul's story similar to those other stories? Well, that's pretty obvious. His conversion is sudden, it's dramatic, and it sticks, okay? So Paul's conversion is similar to those stories in those respects. How is it different? Well, in all those other stories, the person who is suddenly changed by the Holy Spirit already has something going on inside them. They are already restless. They're already troubled. Augustine was torn up with his struggle with desire and lust. Martin Luther struggled with his ability to feel justified. Chuck Colson, obviously, torn up about Watergate. And that's true of most modern dramatic conversion stories, right? That the story as it's told, if it's told to you in a chapel, usually the person stands up there and says, you know, I look great on the outside, but on the inside I was coming apart. In Paul's conversion, is Paul coming apart? Is there some sort of restlessness in him? Is there some sort of sense in him that he's not right with God and that he's on the right, wrong path and that things are a mess? Absolutely not. Paul is utterly confident of the rightness of his ways. He is completely sure that he is in God's path. He is so sure that he is more zealous than the high priests. The high priests already have a program for wiping out the Christian church. Paul is more zealous than the high priest. He doesn't wait for the high priest to say, go to Damascus to find Christians. He goes to the high priest, knocks on his door and says, your excellency, I would like some papers. I'd like to go to Damascus and I'm going to look for Christians. And if I find them, I'm going to throw them in jail. And I can imagine the high priest saying, really, Paul, Damascus? Um, we don't have any record of a church there. I don't think the church has sent evangelists there. You, you sure you want to go? Your Excellency, we can't be too careful. We've got to wipe out this church at all costs. Okay, Paul, here are your papers. Honestly, Paul, sometimes your zeal scares me. Paul is not chewed up. He's not restless. He doesn't have some sort of sense that his life is going the wrong way. He is utterly confident of the rightness of his ways. So there is nothing in Paul paving the way for the Spirit's movement. There's nothing in Paul paving the way for the Spirit's movement. Not only was there nothing in Paul paving the way for the Spirit's movement, there was nothing in the people around Paul. Another convention of a dramatic conversion story is that even though the other person is a mess and is far away from the Lord, that there's some righteous person in their orbit who is praying for them or is hoping that they'll be converted. Augustine's mother, Monica, was always praying for her son that he may be right with the Lord. Chuck Colson, as I said, had Tom Phillips, who was concerned about his friend and witness to him. There are always these wonderful people in all these stories who are, who are circling around that person, praying for him and hoping for them. Was there anyone in all of Christendom hoping and praying that Paul would be converted? I think if you'd ask Christians in those days, one person they thought would be least likely to become a follower of Jesus, that person would have been Paul. And you can sense how unlikely they felt it was in the way Ananias reacts when he's given the instructions from the Lord. Now think about this. Ananias actually hears the Lord's voice give him a command. Now if it were me or most of you and you heard the Lord's voice 
give a command, you would say, yes, Lord, I will do whatever you say, Lord. Ananias is so incredulous that it could possibly be Paul that the Lord is calling him to go to that he argues with the Lord. Uh, did you say Saul? Are you sure? Has there been some sort of filing error in heaven? Because I know this guy and I don't think he's right for you, Jesus. God has to come back with a strong imperative. No, go. This man is my chosen instrument. So there's nothing in Paul to pave the way for the Spirit's movement. And there's nothing in any of the people around Paul to pave the way for the Spirit's movement. You might say that Paul's conversion is conversion ex nihilo. Have you heard that Latin phrase, ex nihilo? It means out of nothing. And if you study theology, if you learn some theology, you probably hear that phrase used. What you hear it used in with respect to is creation. People talk about creation ex nihilo. And creation ex nihilo is a Christian doctrine which says that when God created the world, he created it out of nothing, ex nihilo, which means he didn't use any stuff to make the world. So there was no primordial clay, no primordial mud that the Lord took and fashioned into the world. There was nothing. And all the Lord did was say, let there be light, and creation came into being. Creation ex nihilo. Now, I remember learning that doctrine as a young student and accepting it, saying, yeah, okay, that sounds right. I can accept that, creation ex nihilo, I believe that. But I can also remember thinking, who cares? So if God had taken some primordial mud, if he'd used some clay and made the world, would it really make any difference? Would it matter? Yeah, it would. And here's why. When you read the whole of Scripture, it's very clear that when God works with creation, his preference is to work with people. God prefers to work with people's capacities and abilities. So instead of speaking to us directly in a spoken voice, most of us have never heard the Lord speak to us directly, God chooses to speak through preachers and prophets, through other people. He prefers to use other people's abilities. Instead of magically feeding poor people with food that appears on their table, he prefers to call us to acts of charity and benevolence, right? Instead of magically making faith go into the hearts of little babies, he asks us to make promises to tell the story of Jesus and to walk with these kids. That's God's preference, to work with us, to use our capacities. And sometimes we so, get so used to that way of God working with us, that we make a mistake. We go from thinking that God wants our cooperation to thinking that he needs it. We start thinking that righteousness and justice and morality and the goodness of the world depend on our participation. Like if we don't do the things, righteousness will fail, the world will fall apart, and everything will fall to pieces. It's up to us. God prefers our obedience. God calls for our obedience. But he does not require it to bring his kingdom. He's an ex nihilo God. 
He is a God who can create out of nothing. And there are lots of stories at key points in the Bible where you see this ex nihilo power of God, where you see God do something completely without our help. I already mentioned Genesis 1, creation ex nihilo, bringing the world into being out of nothing. Genesis 21, God has a 90-year-old man and his wife give birth to a son. When Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac, that is an ex nihilo act of God. God is not using any raw material there. Exodus 14, Israel's at the shores of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's bearing down on them, they're utterly trapped, there's nothing they could do. God says to them, and I quote, I will fight for you. You only need to be still. Watch while I do something ex nihilo, says the Lord. In Luke 1, when Mary feels the baby move in her womb and the angel tells her that this child is from God, the virgin birth is an ex nihilo act of God. On Easter morning, when all the disciples had given up and gone back to their fishing and the women came to the tomb because they expected to find a dead body there and they found instead that Christ had been raised from the dead, that was an ex nihilo act of God. He did it all by himself. And now on the Damascus Road, God takes the most unexpected person you could imagine, the very last person in all of Christendom who would ever be his follower, and puts the Holy Spirit on him and makes him his spirit to show that he is an ex nihilo God. He's a God who can make something out of nothing. He's a God who can make a way out of absolutely no way. And notice that these are not minor stories. Every one of those ex nihilo acts I mentioned are crucial acts of God in redemptive history. At the crucial points in history, God shows that he does not need us at all. Most of us work really hard at being good people. We work hard at being obedient. We try to bring justice. We try to do the right things. We try to work hard for the church, and that's good. You're running with perseverance, the race marked out for you. That is clearly what God has called us to do and to be. But in all our days of work, we will all come to days of helplessness. You will come to a day where you'll have no answers and no power and no ability. And on that day, you will need the ex nihilo God who can make a way out of no way. Early in my ministry, I visited a man who was dying of cancer. And this man had fought cancer with every ounce of his being. He really, really wanted to live. He had tried absolutely every treatment. He'd gone through terrible times. And he had finally reached a place where he realized that he was going to lose. He was going to die. And there was nothing he could do about it. And I went to visit him, and it was probably the most difficult pastoral visit I've ever had because almost the whole visit, the man was in tears. He was sobbing. And through his tears, he was saying to me, why has God abandoned me? Why hasn't God done anything for me? I can't pray. I can't feel his presence. And then he said through his sobs, and I'll never forget this, I feel like I'm losing my faith. I feel like everything I've always believed in my whole life was a lie. I was a young minister. 
And I did my best to offer counsel and to say some words to him that would make sense in that moment. But honestly, the things I said, I felt like my words just went into the void of his despair. It is in moments like that that we need the stories like Paul's conversion. That man's hope does not depend on his ability to banish his doubts and his fears and to make himself feel feelings of faith. That man's hope does not depend on a young minister's ability to speak words into his darkness. That man's hope depends on the ex nihilo God, the God who can make something out of nothing, the God who can make a way out of no way. Would it have been better if he had faced his death with faith and hope? Would it have been better if I had said better words into that situation? Absolutely and of course. But his hope does not depend on his power to summon up his capacities. We all need this truth. If you're a parent struggling with a difficult child and you've tried absolutely everything and it's not getting any better, but in fact it seems to be getting worse, you need the ex nihilo power of God. If you're a person here who's lost someone you love to suicide, and you tried absolutely everything you could to help this person, you tried your best, and still that person fell down to the bottom of his despair. You need to know about the ex nihilo power of God. If you're a person frustrated, because you're getting to the end of your life and you're still struggling. You thought when you were a kid and when you were older, you'd master your doubts and your worries and you'd get over your temptations, but you're still struggling as hard as you were when you were 25. You need to know about the ex nihilo power of God. Friends, I wish for all of us a deeply committed life of passionate obedience where we give ourselves completely to the work of the Lord but I proclaim to you this morning the God who saved Paul and the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the ex nihilo God who can make something out of nothing and who can make a way out of no way. Amen. Lord God, you know um, how we love you and how our faces are always turned towards you and how in the depths of our heart we, we want to be your servant and we want to follow you and we want to banish our doubts and our temptations and we want your righteousness to fill us. And you also know, Lord, how sometimes we feel very far from that. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of Christ's death and resurrection when we know we can have a liberation from those feelings that goes far beyond our powers and capacities. Lord, Give us the strength to be your people, even when it's hard, and give us the words to proclaim that good news to the people we meet every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.